I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 115 of Cybersecurity Interviews. This is the third episode in a multi-part episode on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we're speaking with Alyssa Miller. Alyssa leads the security strategy for S&P Global Ratings as Business Information Security Officer, connecting corporate security objectives to business initiatives. She blends a unique mix of technical expertise and executive presence to bridge the gap that can often form between security practitioners and business leaders. Her goal is to change how we look at the security of our interconnected way of life and focus on attention of defending privacy and cultivating trust. A native of Milwaukee, Alyssa began her IT career as a programmer for a Wisconsin-based financial software provider. Her security passion quickly shaped her career as she moved into a leadership role within the ethical hacking team, conducting penetration testing and application assessments along with her team. As a hacker, Alyssa has a passion for security that she evangelizes to business leaders and industry audiences through her work as a cybersecurity professional and through her various public speaking engagements. While not engaged in security research and advocacy, she's also an accomplished soccer referee, guitarist, and photographer. In this episode, we discuss why she misses conferences, starting with computers at an early age, diversity, equity, and inclusion, the discrimination she has faced, the lack of understanding of privilege, discriminatory hiring practices, how to be an ally, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Alyssa, thank you for joining me in Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I am doing wonderful, Doug. How are you? I'm doing great. So how are things in the uh, beautiful middle part of the country? I say I am too in Colorado, but how's Milwaukee doing these days? Oh, gosh. We are about to get uh, our first real dumping of snow, at least when we're you know recording this. Yeah. I don't know. Um, by the time it airs, we'll probably have had tons. But yeah, we're. I'm actually got to go get gas for the snowblower. Well, the, the last place I really got to travel and speak at was in Milwaukee in January. Uh, I, I flew in and out. It was going to be a one-day speaking thing. And, and you know, anybody – I should have known better having in-laws – not in-laws, but uh, uh, all my, my family from the Midwest, from Chicago and Ohio, that, you know, January you're not getting in and out of anywhere in the Midwest without some type of delay in my, you know – my uh, arrogance of that missed that and ended up being about a three day delay. I, they kept canceling. I had to drive from Milwaukee to Chicago and it was, it was a whole thing, but it, I got to see, you know, the lake cresting waves as the snow was blowing in in Milwaukee. So it was, it was very yeah. interesting. Good that's food, actually though. rare that you can get out of Chicago easier than Milwaukee. Usually Milwaukee is, you know, we're kind of like Canada South with that. Sort of thing, <laughs> you know? Like as long as they can keep the runway clear enough to get a plane on it, they'll fly planes out. But uh, yeah, if it gets bad enough, I know they they've shut down a few times. Well, speaking of that, I mean, you, yeah. you were, you were, you know, have built a name and a brand by traveling and speaking. Do you miss the the travel aspect this year of getting out there and being on stage? Like you have no idea how bad. Oh, no, I have a feeling I have an idea. Trust me, <laughs> climbing the walls. I, no, I I went into twenty twenty expecting all this international travel. I had just changed jobs, and 
And it was, you know, part of that job was supposed to include a, a, a lot of travel to international conferences and even our, our locations. And yeah, none of that happened. I, I did RSA and then B-Sites Tampa was scheduled to go to Singapore and then Sydney the two weeks following. And in between those two, they shut down all travel. And yeah, I've been I've been suffering here in my home office, which I feel guilty saying suffering because it's pretty, pretty awesome office. But yeah, I I cannot wait to get back on a plane. In fact, Deviant Olam and I have been talking about how a bunch of us are going to go find some place to all travel to together just because it's We've all missed it for so long. Yeah, he's actually somebody I got to hit up. I, I I've back channeled him because uh, I'm I'm trying to raise the next level of hackers. And my daughter, who's ten, and her friend, the condition was they were able to go get the leftover um, Halloween candy at their at my friend's daughter's house if they can get through the lock. I said, "Cool, I'll teach you guys lock picking, and I'll get you a signed copy of, of the lock picking guide." <laughs> so I, I'm trying to get them to, to learn about lock picking. But yeah, it it sucks not being out there and kind of seeing the whole community. Um, what drove you to? I mean, obviously not not a wallflower. You know, you want to get out there and talk. What drove you to kind of get on stage? It's it's you know not something that's always uh, done by folks in our industry where where they can somewhat be a little bit more reserved. Yeah, so it, it's kind of funny because I've been speaking at conferences since 2014. And, but I never really got, I was never really serious about it. Like I, I would do one here and there. And it was, a lot of it was because I was working in a consulting role. And it right, was, right. it's good for, you know, when you're a consultant, especially it's good for your organization to have people out there speaking. And, you know, I, I found right away the first time I did it, like, oh, that, that was actually a lot of fun. Um, but then the more I did it, the more I started to realize, like, I just, I, I really, you know, I've got a lot of ideas I want to share. And I, I love doing this because I've always been, believe it or not, you know, you, you talk about me being out there and it's like, I was very socially awkward. Like I was the person I could go to a conference and be completely alone in a sea of 30,000 people at DEF CON, right? Which, I mean, that's not unusual. People do that all the time. But even at smaller conferences, like I was just never very good at starting conversations with people. And so when I would speak, it was a whole different world because, you know, people would recognize you from having been on stage and then they'd stop you in the hall to ask you questions about what you talked about or whatever, or just to, to thank you. And it was such a great icebreaker because now I could get in, I could have conversations with people in the hallway about all the stuff that we were passionate about and we could, we could share ideas. And that's what conferences are all about to me. You know, and, and so many people will tell you about hallway con is, you know, what, what they live for. It's not even so much the talks. And it's been that way with me. Like, I love, don't get me wrong, I absolutely adore being on stage. It is so much fun. It, it's such an enjoyable experience. And it's great to be able to reach that many people all at once and share your ideas. But it's what happens after when people come up and they ask you about different ideas you pitched or, or they challenge you. I actually, I believe it or not, I really love that as long as it's, you know, done in a constructive and respectful fashion, of course. Of course. But when they come up to you and they want to challenge something you said and they're like, you know, you said this and that. And I, I actually disagree because I'm doing this at my my organization or, you know, I did this in this pen test or whatever. And it, it went this way. And it's, you know, that's like, that's good. That's what we're up there to do. It's let's, let's get those conversations going. So what happened was in 2019, 
the beginning of 2019, I got asked to do my first keynote. And that's when everything just kind of blew up because I, I, that's when I was just like, I should really start to kind of put a, a brand around this. If I'm going to be, you know, now keynoting at conferences, you know, it, it would be good to actually have that brand that kind of precedes it so that if a conference is having me speak and they say, hey, Alyssa Miller is going to be our keynote, that like that, that alone draws something for the conference too. And so I just, I started to get more active. I started submitting more CFPs. I figured, you know, the more I can get out there and share ideas and it just, it, it kind of took off. It's really wild how it happened. But, you know, over the course of the last two years, it's just exploded as far as my involvement and, in, you know, being at conferences and so forth. Yeah, it's funny, you know, you, I will talk about bad biases later, but I love confirmation bias that um, allows people to validate my own beliefs because <laughs> self, you know, self-assurance is something I need, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, but it's, so the whole reason of this podcast was really started for exactly what you said is when people get off stage was those sidebar conversations. It was lobby con, it was hallway con drinks at the bar. I'm like, we need to record this. This is better than what was on stage. And that was the impetus of the podcast to build that community of people talking um, about everything. You know, there, there's, you know, I, I would, I look at security as one of the most critical things is communications and information sharing. If, if you don't know what others are doing and other people's perspective, you, you limit your ability to be effective. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and that's, again, I mean, that that's what these conferences are for. They're to get those exchange of ideas because it is effective. And it's, it's why employers spend a lot of money sending people to these conferences because they expect that they're going to come back with some additional knowledge or some additional networking, things that are going to be beneficial and, you know, and unless all you do is hang out at the bar, you can't help but get some value out of going to a conference. I mean, you, you can go to a conference, skip all the talks, but if you get engaged with people in conversation afterwards, you're still going to come back with valuable information, valuable networking, whatever. Yeah, definitely. So kind of take us back to, you know, when, when you got involved with technology, what was your, uh, what was your first computer? Well, so the first one I ever used, I'll go back to when I was four. My dad was an accountant for this little heating and cooling company in Milwaukee. And so at the end of the year, you know, last two weeks, they kind of shut down because there's, you know, other than emergency calls, they're not going to have guys going out and doing work in new construction, um, you know, during that time. And I realized, yes, I said guys, that's because it you know, we're talking early 80s. It was all guys. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, so those last two weeks, he's the accountant. He's got to close the books for the year. And rather than, you know, be in that office all by himself, my dad was like pioneer of work from home. He brought home this big Zenith H89 or I forget what the model number now was. But, you know, it's gigantic, all one piece computer you remember from those you know late 80 or late 70s early 80s like the looked like a trs 80 if you're familiar with those oh very much so and um you know so he would bring that home so he could do all the work at home rather than having to go into the office well when he wasn't working he had video games for it and he would let us he'd let me play and it was like okay so that kind of sparked my interest and it just it, it snowballed from there right like i remember watching mr wizard and every time he was doing something on the computer. I always made sure to, to catch those episodes uh, in 
elementary school, I was fortunate enough to go to a school that had a formal computer lab. Um, originally, it was stocked with the aforementioned TRS-80s. Um, later on, they got a bunch of apples through you know some of those programs Apple had going in the late 80s to try to equip schools. And so you know, I got a little introduction to programming. But then when I was 12, I saved up bunch of money by, you know, I had a, I had a paper route. Okay. I was delivering newspapers and I saved up a thousand dollars and I went out and I bought a computer, you know, and we're talking 1989 people didn't have, there weren't many people that had computers in their homes. Right. I mean, that was not as ubiquitous as it is today. And, you know, so here's this little 12 year old buys herself her first computer. And I mean, I taught myself everything on that thing. It was like the very first thing I did, because I didn't know any better, was I followed the instructions and blew away the partition and started from scratch, not knowing that everything was already installed on the computer. Because um, they gave me all the disks and they gave right. me manuals. And the manual said, first thing you do is you run F-disk. I'm like, okay, boom, F-disk. Oh, partition's already there. Delete. Now what? And, you know, it just, and the snowball from there, I taught myself basic programming. I got into serial and modem communications. I did some things that would be of questionable legality with uh, online service prodigy. I'm sure uh, the statutes of limitations on what we've done I, in the, the early nineties. We'll, we'll just, we'll just assume they've, they've believe expired. it or not. I've looked into it and I think I'm safe. <laughs> I am pretty sure that. Uh, I hope so. Cause you know, I, like a lot of us are. <laughs> Plus I was a juvenile. So, you know, the, the two combined, I'm pretty sure I'm safe. Um, but yeah, so. And, you know, and it, it's wild because I didn't see that being a career, you know, computers, I never thought would be a career. In fact, I went to university, um, as a pre-med major and it wasn't until after I'd done three semesters of college chemistry and was like, yo, peace out. I'm done with this. <laughs> um, you know, and then I had a scramble. I mean, for anyone who's changed majors, you know how that goes. It's like you decide, all right, I'm done with this major. It's like, well, crap, what do I do now? I had all these plans. I got to shift everything. So I start digging through course catalogs and I come across computer science. Like, oh, it's all programming. I know how to program. That'll be easy. Yeah, I was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing easy about computer science, but it was worth it in the end. I mean, I, you know, now we're talking dot com era and I ended up getting a full time job as a programmer before I was even out of school. Um, so, you know, I, my whole career has kind of been fairly serendipitous that way. It's not been any result of careful planning on my part. It's just been you know, having an opportunity come up and to my, you know, to not to try to break out of the imposter syndrome here for a second, you know, to my credit, I did seize those moments when they happened and I made them work. You know, there is that. But um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of it was I just I happened to have the right breaks and I happened to seize on the right ones when they came up again, not because I had some magical foresight and I knew it just I followed what interests me and what seemed cool and what I wanted to do. And it just sort of, you know, played into this whole career that I've got now. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, your, your, your background and path is so eerily similar to mine and, and others too. Um, you know, there's so many people think, okay, you know, and the part of the, again, the podcast was also, you know, besides the, the lobby con conversations, the sidebars is, you know, to help people get into the industry because they're like, okay, well, what do I do? I'm like, 
I wish I had an answer. Like mine was, again, was very serendipitous. I still suffer from imposter syndrome. I think they're going to come through the door any moment and tell me, look, the gig is up. You've, you've doing this 30 years, you've tricked us all, but at some point, like you feel like, oh my gosh, there's something I missed. And it's, it's what I think, what people miss in cybersecurity, it's, it's a series of fortunate and unfortunate events that you chain together and you, you kind of, you, you muscle through it one way or the other. No, it is. And it's tough because, yeah, you've got people now who are trying to plot a career, right? I mean, like they're actually trying to do what you would do with any industry and plan it out. And because so many of us, especially from the era that you and I come from, you know, we did sort of fall into this. We don't have good answers all the time. And as an industry, you know, security hasn't done at all a good job of building career paths and, you know, kind of mapping this stuff out for people to get in here. We, we kind of threw it all on academics for a while and said, well, you know, the academic space needs to prepare these people better. And then people started coming to us and said, okay, we did the academic thing. Give me a job. And we're like, well, no, you know, school doesn't do it enough. You, you need to have all this experience. Well, I, I need a job to get experience. Yeah, but you can't get a job until you have experience. Well, wait, what? Yeah. You know, and so, you know, and then we, we kind of threw things at certifications for a while. And then we started saying, well, no, just having a certification doesn't mean anything. That's not what a certification is for, which is true. But then why the heck did we push all these people into buying all these expensive certifications? Right. So, and, and so I'm, we can probably spend easily two hours and that's going to be part of my goal this year in 2021 of, of you know, making things easier for people to get into the industry. Um, and one of the things I really want to lean into and I had you on the show was talking about diversity and inclusion. I mean, it's an issue where we do say from, you know, from the schools and how people look and are brought into the schools or recruited. You know, when you read the studies about, well, why are there not enough, you know, females coding? And it's like, well, because of the way that it's inherently biased to kind of keep some females and, you know, 50% of the population out, you know, it's, it's, there's fundamental issues, but there's also overt things. And I love for you to talk about some of the discrimination you faced in, you know, in the job place, because I think it's relevant to understand that people, it's like, it's not just microaggressions. It's not just inherent bias. There's, there's things that happen that are more overt that we as a community and as an industry need to address. Oh, for sure. And, you know, before people even start thinking like, oh God, another diversity inclusion talk, let me say something here and then I'll get into what you're asking. And that is we, Hopefully, I think more and more people in security start recognize the, the business value and the value to our community of diversity, right? And that, that's a thing that we've got to get to is we have to understand that a white person cannot have the same perspectives as a black person or as a Native American person or as a Hispanic person. You simply don't. And I don't care what world you came from. If you're white, you don't have the same experience. If you're a man, you don't have the same experience as a woman. If you're cis and you're, you're heterosexual, you don't have the same experience in life as someone from the LGBT community. It's that simple. Yep. So we do need to be intentional about seeking that diversity because it has value. When we look at things like AI systems that are failing in terms of just being able to even create faces of black people, right? I mean, they, they took Barack Obama and made him a white man. Like, what the hell? Yeah. Um, we've seen it with TSA, with their body scanners, and they had failures there that were unfairly targeting Black women because of, 
you know, they didn't account for certain characteristics of common hairstyles that black women wear that really aren't common with any other demographic. So, you know, to that end, yeah, some of that, we need to recognize that first. So if you're listening to this and you're hearing diversity and inclusion, you're like already backing out, pay attention because it is important and it isn't just to make people feel good. Now, you know, from that discrimination perspective, yeah, as a, a woman, you get it every day. Um, you know, I've been in those conversations where you're in a room full of men and you're the only woman there. And every time you try to talk, you get interrupted and you get talked over. And if you dare talk over a man, you get cut off and told to wait your turn, basically. Um, you know, and or I've had that situation, too, where you say something, people don't really react they don't really buy into it. And then the man next to you says it in almost the exact same words, sometimes verbatim. And suddenly it's like, you know, oh, that's a great idea. And you're sitting there like, what the hell happened? Because that happens a lot. Um, and I don't think men always realize it. You know, when you're there, how often men will dominate a conversation? Like I've actually, I, I've taken to the point now where I'm in some of those conversations and I'll actually sit there and I'll just kind of, informally pay attention to how much time is spent by the men talking versus the women and how many times a man will cut off a woman mid-sentence and speak over her versus the opposite and that it just doing that like kind of you know napkin math it's it's terrifying and it you know it, it's and then you start to see it but you know so maybe that's even that's a little more subtle um you know, just our promotions practices. And this is a common thing. There's been studies on this. And what's funny is it's not just men who practice this discrimination. It happens with women dealing with other women as well. And that is men get promoted based on their potential. So you're a manager and I'm looking at you. Wow, you're a really good manager. You have the potential, although you've never you know, you've never managed managers before, you have the potential to be a great director. For a woman, it's, well, you're a great manager, but you don't have any managing managers experience. So we, we can't make you a, a, a director. You, you, should, you should start first by, you know, trying to take on some of those, those responsibilities of a director in your manager role. Oh yeah, we won't pay you for that. You know, you won't get paid extra. But that's how you get that experience. And once you have all that experience, then we'll promote you. And if you haven't figured it out, everything I just said there, that's what happened to me, literally, was I was in line for a promotion. The outgoing director had recommended me for the job to not just the VP who was the hiring manager, but I mean, all the way up to the EC. So all the executives had heard my name. They all knew who I was. And yet the story I got was, well, you don't have enough managing managers experience. And I'm sitting there like, okay, I've been a manager for the last 10 years. I have managed managers before, maybe not a lot of them. I had, you know, but you look at that and that's what happens. And so, you know, when that happened to me, I started going through kind of their past hiring and how did these other directors get there? How many of them had director experience before? because the rest of them were all men. 
And I look at it and every one of those directors, you know what? That director job was the first time they ever managed other managers. Mm. And that's the kind of thing that happens. And it, it's one of those things that can happen and it can be so subtle because it's, it's impossible to prove, right? Like, how do you prove that this is why I was held back? Because they can stand there and claim, well, that's a legitimate reason to hold somebody back. But it ignores, you know, the fact that you, you've hired a million different men into this role just based on their potential to be good at it. And for us, you want us to be, you know, already fully experienced. Kind of like we do with entry level jobs in cybersecurity. Yeah, there's a there's there's without a doubt a trend, and I and I've seen it in the past 10, 12 years where you know being in large organizations, and you know even I, I can go back to where I was thinking where I had somebody you know help out who was more on the forensic accounting side in a larger organization. I brought them into do more of the computer forensic stuff and investigations and, and financial fraud investigations, and I think it was on their annual review. I said, look, they were they were and it was was a was a, a young female analyst and I said look she'd had um, you know on this particular project had not like exceeded expectations had just done you know needs improvement but not in a negative way I was like you know I'm, I'm glad she stuck her neck out on there and they really came down hard on me and her for saying well look you know you know now this is gonna hurt her rating it's gonna hurt the manager's rating I'm like well you're 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 inherently putting in a structure that doesn't allow people to try to move up moves out of their comfort zone because you're going to punish them if I say, hey, glad that they at least tried, but they're now they're going, you know, they need some improvement. And I called out the improvement, like good initial, here's what we need to fix it. And it was immediately shot down. Well, and it's so wild because isn't that exactly what you want? Yeah. You want, I mean, I'm sorry, but having been a manager for 12 years, if I write a review where somebody has no room to improve, I'm doing an awful <laughs> exactly. job as a I'm a terrible manager if that's how I write reviews. Like nobody has gotten so good at their job that there's just nothing they can improve upon. I don't give a rat's butt who you are. <laughs> I'm sorry. If you think that that's where you're at, then you probably should just retire because you're not going to be useful to anybody if you don't think you have room to improve. Yeah. It, and I think part of it too, that, that I've seen to surround some things with, with language that creates uh, perception. And, you know, I've, I've been really taking the time again, you know, for me to be a cis, hetero, male, white, side, solid financial background, able-bodied, East Coast origin person in this industry, um, I don't think I've really fully appreciated the benefits of that until more recently. Um, even though I came from a very diverse background, all my extended uh, families, uh, West Indian origin, you know, my, my, again, just, I've had people in the LBGTQ community as part of my family. I just, I just kind of grew up without that perception of it being different or weird for me, but also don't at the same time, as you mentioned earlier, unless you've been in those shoes, you really don't appreciate it. So it's very easy, I think, for other people to even say, oh, you know, you're just virtue signaling, Doug. You're just, I'm like, oh God, am I, am I doing the wrong? And I'm trying to do the right thing. And I realized it was people in their own position that want to not change things. It's like language evolves over time. Culture evolves all the time. I, you know, using the N word 50 years ago wasn't a big deal. I mean, colored wasn't such a big, we don't use that today for specific reasons and other language has to change. So, you know, I've, I've had where even directors have, you know, where I'm trying to fast track a, a female employee to like, who's now thankfully a VP level at 30. And I'm like so proud of her for like getting into this massive leadership position. 
having to fight a lot of hurdles, but you know, he would say, Hey princess. I'm like, Oh dude, she's going to kick your ass, dude. Like I'm, uh, you shouldn't be worried about me wrecking you. Like she will eat you alive. And it was just like, well, what's the big deal? And it's like, well, I'm trying to like get her into a management. Now you're shooting her down in front of others and you don't know why. So it, that language becomes important. And so teaching people about this stuff, it's not just virtue signaling. It's not just, you know, a fringe group of, uh, of, of the demographics. It's, it does have meaning. So, you know, where, where do we get better at this? Because part of the problem too is for me, it's like, okay, well, what, where do I say it and do the right things and be respectful? Because I want to know. So it's like, it's, is there, you know, how, how do we have the language conversation to make things more inclusive and be quite frankly aware? And it's not going to be perfect. Well, I mean, I think for starters, we need to get past some of the dog whistles like that. Right. I mean, that, that's an absolute dog whistle. The, you know, just that, that kind of reaction. Um, another one that's really common is the, uh, you know, you start talking how we need more diversity and people say, yeah, well, you need diversity of thought. Well, yeah, duh, you do. But it's, that's a dog whistle for people are saying, you know, there's no value to having diversity in people's skin color and diversity in people's backgrounds that it's only, you know, you could hire all white males and still have diversity of thought. That is a wrong answer. For the same reasons I mentioned before, you cannot have a room full of white males who understand anything about what it's like to be a woman, what it's like to be black, what it's like to be Latin, what it's like to be, you know, a, a native. You, none of that. You can't possibly understand that. And so to get diversity of thought, you have to be intentional about getting visible diversity. And that's, that's a big misnomer. So I think to get the conversation started, we have to just talk about the value of that and where it actually comes from. Because there, there's too much of that, um, you know, just it being dismissed or, you know, people when, you know, people talk about privilege and, oh my God, you know, the, the, last, the same job, by the way, where I experienced that discrimination um, that I was talking about before, you know, we're in the onboarding and one day's worth of onboarding was dedicated to diversity and inclusion training. And they're spending time talking about, um, you know, privilege. And of course you have that white male upper middle-class person sitting at the table with me who sits there and just was adamant. Well, I, I don't have privilege. I came from, you know, this and this background and you can't tell me that I had it easy just because I'm white male. And it's like, no one said you had it easy. What we told you is that if you put a black person in the same given circumstances that you had to grow through, it would have been three times more difficult for them because they wouldn't have just been facing the same financial hardships that you did. They would have been facing all of the other discrimination as well on top of that. So, you know, people don't understand that, that privilege discussion. So I think, you know, just coming to that understanding is important but the only way we get to that understanding in a credible way is that we need people of the same demographic speaking to people like that. So I, in other words, that upper class white heterosexual cis male needs to hear from other upper cl middle class white heterosexual males that here's the deal, dude, you need to understand this. And unfortunately, like you said, even then sometimes, they get accused of white knighting or, you know, whatever. And it's, so it, it's gotta be continually reinforced. Um, so there's a long way to go, but I, honestly, without allies, 
in those spaces, it's not going to get any better. So, you know, I look at myself, a white woman. Yeah. Do I have challenges? I'm white. I'm, you know, that overcomes a lot of them. Yeah. I'm LGBT. I'm a woman. So I deal with some of those, but compared to the black woman down the street, who's got the same or better skills as me, it's a lot easier for me to get a new job and to, to get a promotion or anything else, even despite what I face in discrimination, because my skin color is white. And, you know, it, it's so uncomfortable for white people to admit that. And it, which is a shame because, you know, it, it, there's this weird fear that, you know, well, if we have equality, I, my piece of the pie shrinks. Well, there's no pie. Yeah. It, you know, I mean, you've, you've, I'm sure we've all seen the memes about it. You know, equality is not a pie. It's not that, you know, if, if someone gets more equality, which that's a funny word, more equality. Yeah. <laughs> um, if someone actually progresses towards equality, somehow your piece of the pie gets smaller. No, that's not how it works. We rise together. And, you know, but there are those people who are just convinced that, you know, if, if black voices or Native American voices are amplified, that, you know, theirs are somehow drown out then. Yeah, it's it's been obviously this past year has been really interesting with, you know, I think a lot of things that quite frankly just just came to a head. It was just bubbling up and you know, you can't, people can't be surprised of like, oh my gosh, there's all of a sudden this movement. It's like, no, let's, you know, me as a security person, I in IR person, I'm like, right, what's the root cause analysis? Where did this start? And you trace it back and so much of this is ingrained into American history and and when you look at even things like gosh, even like a, you know, Thanksgiving and really look at the history of that. And, and again, Columbus day, it's like, yeah, we want to promote these, these, these things and, and gloss over bad things. I mean, that's part of our brain is like, we want to rewire ourselves constantly say, uh, yeah, let's not address the, <laughs> the bad things. But you know, when, when you're talking to somebody else that has been subject to some of these discriminations and, and hurts them, what I found out something that resonated with me is you're not allowed to tell me how I feel about your actions, you know? And, 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 and so it's, it's a lot of the position of this, you know, the, the people quote unquote in power are saying, well, you know, you shouldn't feel this way. It's like, you don't have a right to tell somebody that, you know, your actions are impacting somebody. They, they have every right to feel a, a way by you doing something. So you need to change, not them. Well, and worse than that, I mean, I'll take it one step back from that. You don't have a right to tell them how, you know, who they are or what their experience has been. And that's what really kills me are the number of people out there right now who want to tell black people that, well, you're making too much out of this. That's not how it is. You don't know. You're not a black person. You haven't lived that life. You're not a trans person. You don't get to sit there and tell trans people, you know, what their experience is. Thank you, JK Rowling, by the way. You know nothing, woman. You, you, I mean, that, it drives me nuts. These people out there who want to ascribe their personal experiences to those of others and use their personal experiences to dictate to others what their experience is. And that's what we've got to get away from. It, it, we are so lacking in empathy. And I think our current political environment has highlighted that more than ever before. You mentioned, you know, the protests and everything else that we've been dealing with this year. And, you know, which is just the, like you said, I mean, it's just the the explosion of decades and centuries of garbage that's been occurring. Um, you know, and, but people, you know, in those positions of privilege, whatever it is, whether it's just because they're white 
or they're white male or whatever who have taken it upon themselves to tell everybody else that this is how the world works because this is how I've experienced it and don't understand and have no desire to understand that other people have experienced the world very differently than you. And the things they're telling you are true. They're not making this stuff up. To assume that people are making this up because they want the easy route or anything else is inherently you know, prejudiced in itself because you're saying that their word means nothing to you because your experience tells you something different. And so you can't possibly make room in your mind that your experience is just one perspective on a wider range of perspectives that exist. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see these people that have said, <clears throat> say, yeah, I definitely want to talk diversity. And, you know, if more people would be like me in the same, then, then we would be diverse. It's like, I don't think you, you keep using this word diversity. I don't think you know what it means. <laughs> you can't ascribe a mold that people have to fit into and then call it diversity. Exactly. And so that's where we get into hiring practices, right? And this is one of the things that frustrates me there too. Like, you know, the dog whistle there is hire the best candidate. Well, yeah, you want to hire the best candidate. No one is suggesting that hiring for diversity means hiring less qualified people. It doesn't. What it requires is you to self-analyze what your criteria is for who is the best person and, and ask yourself, how is that basically me creating my own little echo chamber? If I, as a hiring manager, am looking for people, one of my least favorite comments from a hiring manager ever in a, uh, in a survey that I did earlier this year, it was the most common thing that hiring managers said they look for, is passion. Passion for the job. Want to talk about dog whistle? At, take that one step beyond now and ask those managers what passion means to them. How, how do you measure passion? Well, they do all these same things that I did, which was, you know, they came in as a, a developer and, and they, you know, they did all this self-study and they did this and that. And it's like, okay, do you understand that by expecting all these people to go through the same steps you did, you're already making sure that you're limiting the background to only those people who see this world the same way you do. And you're possibly looking for people who had certain opportunities you did that don't exist for others. So you're a white hiring manager and you're saying, I want this, 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 this. Well, yeah, as a white person, you had more access to be able to do that. As a white upper middle class person, you had more access to that kind of education. For you know somebody in a minority coming out of a you know maybe poverty level position and trying to get into tech, you know, one, they've got very different perspectives on the world and how things function. Two, they don't have all those same opportunities. So to get their diversity of thought, to use your dog whistle against you folks, you know, you actually need to go looking for those people who experienced that because that's the only way that you're going to have success in getting that wide range, that diversity of thought. Diversity of thought does not come from hiring a bunch of people who've, whose experiences look just like yours. Yeah, if you're hiring for an echo chamber, you're 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 setting yourself up for failure. And to, to your point, it's like I, I look at things in efficiencies. It's like okay, if this took me ten years to do something, how's the next time I do it or somebody else does it? How they, how they do it in one year, six months? I'm always looking to they do things, you know, process improvement. And if you're saying, uh, you know, we need to have people go through the gauntlet of ten years of suffering, it's like, well, okay, that's not scalable. Um, again, we have this 
issue where we were trying to fill a lot of seats in these different jobs. Um, and if you're making it inherently longer and more difficult than it has to be for your own ego, you're really not helping yourself in any capacity. No, not in the least. And I mean, I tell people this all the time that what, uh, I mean, again, manager for 12 years, I've hired a lot of people. And when I'm hiring people, I'm looking for people who will disagree with me. One of my favorite questions, and I've actually adopted it now too, because you know, when you're interviewing, you're interviewing your manager as much as they're interviewing mm-hmm. you. One of the favorite questions I got a number of years ago, and I, I couldn't believe I'd never thought to ask this of a potential manager before. So pay attention, by the way, for those of you looking for jobs, this is a great question to ask your potential manager. How do you want me to push back against you? And pay attention to the response you get. I'm basically asking you, how do you like me to bring my disagreements to you? And if the manager struggles with that question, that's a red flag. Like, you know, give them a minute because they probably never heard that question before. But if they're really struggling to answer that, that's something to be aware of because that means that that's very well a manager who's not used to people bringing them disagreement. Like a manager should know how they like to be disagreed with. And they should embrace being disagreed with. If you get those, if you ask that question, pay attention to the response. It's not so much that there's a right or wrong answer. It's paying attention to that response and how they answer it. And are there those indicative little remarks they make that basically make it clear they don't like to be disagreed with. And that's, that's problematic. So, I mean, you're not really looking for the answer like, okay, this is the process I'm yeah. going to follow this, this new manager. You're listening for how do they react to being disagreed with? Yeah, it's funny. I when I, I had when I when I built teams and offices, other managers in other divisions and other offices would always come and see my team's interaction and be like, "You're hanging your chin out there, and they're beating you up." I'm like, "Yeah, I, I want to see how they respond to things. I want to wrestle out ideas. I don't think I'm right." I'm always, first question to ask people is, "What am I missing?" <laughs> you know, because I, I I assume I. I am very strong willed and opinionated, but you know, just cause I bully something through doesn't mean it's right. <laughs> oh no, not at all. And I mean, if you really want to take that question to the next level, now this takes some bravery, right? I mean, this takes real bravery in the interview process. You can go ahead and disagree with the manager right on the call. I mean, I've done that before too. Um, you know, to, to be blunt, I'm actually, uh, you know, as of this recording, I'm going to be in a new position um, that I just, accepted recently. And I'll tell you during that interview process, you know, there were a couple times where that's exactly what I did. We were talking, we were talking shop about different ideas and somebody would throw something out there and I would intentionally disagree with it in one case. And I'm not going to lie. In one case, I, I disagreed when I didn't really necessarily totally disagree just to see yeah. you know, how are these people going to react when I bring them something different than what they believe is the thing. And that's so crucial because, you know, if you don't do that, again, you you have to make sure, you know, that's a, that's a classic sign of getting into a toxic environment. And especially again, if you're in a, you know, an underrepresented group, like, you know, any of the aforementioned, you know, groups that I've talked about, um, you want to make sure that you're going somewhere where your voice is going to get heard. And you're not just going to get dismissed. And that that's a critical piece of that interview process. Like, I can't stress that enough. 
one of the things that I've noticed you do in your talks and I do in mine is like, okay, we've now talked about, we've identified the problem and it's like, how do we make action items? And we've even, you know, talked about some of the things to do, but to me, it's also giving folks resources, you know, as we kind of wrap this up is, you know, again, for me, this is, is as, as quote unquote woke as I thought I was coming into this year, it really made me go back and read books um, about white privilege really look into the country's history, how underrepresented groups have been treated, even though I've been champions for them, is really try to, again, as you said, and, and I probably have done it. I probably said, well, I I can see through their eyes. I'll understand. And it's like, no. And it really, to your point, I had to sit back and be empathetic and go, I am wrong, which was the first thing. It was really hard to do and say, I don't know what I'm talking about. And I really need to start listening more. Um, well, it's hard. But what, you know, again, there was books I read about, um, you know, why are all the black kids sitting together in cafeteria? Great book. I recommended. Are there other resources for people that look like me, even though now, you know, my, my, my avatar photo professionally is, is very cis white guy in a suit, even though I have a blue Mohawk right now, which uh, it's been told is very splunky. So again, talking about culture, they've adopted more who I am. And I felt I haven't had to hide behind this. Ooh, this is what, this is what success looks like. Let me portray it um, because I think I'm doing a disservice by continuing to, you know, play into that. So I'm going to change up my image and be more me. Um, but, you know, what are some of the other resources that folks can, people can learn about? Like where, where would you point people and say, okay, wow, I, I realize where, where do I go? Where do I start? I mean, there's a lot of books and stuff out there and I, I'm, I'm probably not going to go through the litany yeah. of them. Um, I mean, you, you do a search. I mean, honestly, but therein lies the real factor that I think is most important here is just be open to challenging just the way you said it, you know, be open to challenging your thoughts, be open to the idea that something might be different and then research it a little bit. If, if worst case scenario, if it's all you can do, Google it. I don't consider Googling things research, but okay, that's a start. Like just reading and actually reading with a critical mind to think, and be, and I mean critical of yourself, not critical of the author you're reading. Be critical of yourself as you're hearing an author's perspective and look for where maybe you've been potentially biased. I mean, good Lord, in our super hyper polarized political environment right now, where we have a bunch of people who have just been completely beat down with misinformation, how important is it to be that critical of the things that you believe in and really look at them and say, are... I believe in this, but is it actually right? Um, you know, reach out and just have conversations with people. You know, I'm not saying, what I'm not saying, please God, don't do this, is seek out those underrepresented people and just say, hey, can I talk to you about, you know, diversity and inclusion? Because let me tell you, underrepresented groups, the weight is always put on them to solve the problem. Yeah. Go look in most of your organizations at the diversity and inclusion, like business resource groups or things that exist. How many of them are led or predominantly their members are all of some underrepresented group and finding a, a cis white male in there is, you know, almost impossible. Which is funny you say that because that's where I felt and this is where I encourage people that, again, look like me and the, the avatar I represent 
don't be scared to get involved with those. I, I felt really like women in security here in Colorado. I'm like, eh, I, I don't fit that demographic. I shouldn't be involved. And same thing with the diversity and inclusion groups here. And people are like, no, idiot, you're the one we're trying to get to. We need you involved so you can tell your story so you can change your way of thought. I'm like, I get it now. And it, but it, it, it really, it took again, like me getting down a lot of those barriers and folks that, you know, would criticize me for just virtue signaling and all this stuff. To really say, oh, yeah, I, I need to be involved. I need to talk about where I've created the problem. Yeah, and and that, that's great. On the flip side, I will say, too, don't re- resist the urge to be offended if you come across one of those groups where they're like, no, yeah. we don't accept white males. Because sometimes there is just a need to create that safe space, which doesn't exist anywhere else, you know, for those underrepresented groups. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of a very specific Twitter thread that just happened a couple of weeks ago um, where this kind of thing happened. You know, a bunch of women wanted to get together for a girl's night and, you know, enter the white males who, you know, all but demanded to be included in that space. And it's like, no, you know what? We have to live in those spaces every day. You know, we hear about the good old boys club. There is no good old girls club. Right. Right. It doesn't exist because every space that we exist in has males in it, unless we specifically create a space that doesn't. And considering what we deal with in terms of abuses and discrimination from men, yeah, we do need that space. You don't have, as a white male, that same experience. So I'm sorry. No, we we won't allow you into that space. So definitely be there. And a lot of the formal groups, like you mentioned, um, you know, Women of Security, WOSEC, uh, there's, uh, or you might've been talking about WESIS, which is another mm-hmm. one I'm involved in, which is uh, women in cybersecurity. You know, a lot of those groups will absolutely embrace you as a male coming in as an ally. And a lot of them have ally programs, which are great. And please be a part of that, do your part, but also understand there will be times that there will be spaces that you're not allowed in sure. just the way there's spaces that we haven't been allowed in for, you know, centuries. Got it. I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. I know we could probably go on for at least three or four more hours. We have, as, as we discussed, we have full schedules on our, our quote unquote Friday day off, but uh, <laughs> where can folks find you online? I know you're not hard to find online, but if there's the one spot people want to go get you. Easiest is Twitter. So at Alyssa M underscore InfoSec. Um, so it's A-L-Y-S-S-A-M underscore InfoSec. Um, otherwise LinkedIn is really good too. I don't get on my DMS as much in LinkedIn. So I'll, I'll warn you of that. Um, or my website, alyssasec.com. Um, you know, any of those, please feel free to reach out, but yeah, Twitter by far the easiest. My DMS are always open, <laughs> uh, sometimes much to my own demise, but uh. <laughs> I know the feeling. Well, I'll be sure to put all that in the show notes and I'm glad, uh, this is not the end of our conversation, but just the start. Sounds great. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.